So I, as um, we said in the beginning of the retreat, this retreat format is very powerful, but it's in a much broader context that we do retreat. It's not meant to be the only example of what Buddhist practice looks like. It's just a very intentional time of coming together, studying, practicing, feeling community. But it happens in a much larger picture of your entire life. So when we come to the end of the retreat, we can start pointing our attention to what a full life practice looks like. One of the reasons I loved going over to Burma and practicing there, and I keep bringing people over there, not that we go right from the airplane, right to a monastery, close our eyes, and feel our breath, and then who knows you're in Burma if your eyes are closed. You probably do from all the sounds of hammers and whatever. But again, it's an eightfold path. It's not uh, mindfulness, samadhi, and then these other folds. There's, it's a rich um, whole life practice. So when we come on retreat, certain things get emphasized because we're making use of the time together. But when you go back, some of the priorities shift, some of the other parts of the practice come, and they're, um, they may be more pronounced back at home. So when I ordained as a monk, and I had to follow these 227 precepts, um, it really destroyed my samadhi, because <laughs> I had to, just, re- just remembering them kept my mind really busy, let alone trying to do them the right way. And so I was a little upset by that, and they said, uh, this is your practice, this is watching what happens when you pull the precepts forward, and they're not just the kind of something you say on the beginning of a retreat, but you really make them your practice. And they are, they're a mindfulness practice when you're out engaging with people. So it won't necessarily be this refined, watching your breath and the arising and passing of a thought, you'll be engaging people. And so we tend to then bring the precepts forward and make sure that we're really following them and our intentions behind all the actions that we take, all the complex actions. We make sure that our wisdom is clear, our intentions are clear, and the precepts are clear. And we use mindfulness and effort to support that. So some of the... the, um, the proportions change of where we're putting emphasis on the Eightfold Path. The, pre- the precepts, livelihood, become much more to the forefront. Speech becomes much more to the forefront than it might on a retreat like this. Another practice that's <clears throat> deeply woven through this tradition is the practice of generosity. And when we come on retreat like this, um, we're practicing so much within our own sphere of awareness that we're not necessarily putting our attention on other people and engaging them as much. We did more on this retreat than what's normal on a silent retreat. When you got out into the world, it's not just about not doing harm. It's also about the practice of kindness and generosity and keeping your attention on your well-being and the well-being of beings around you. So again, it might not be emphasized so much when we're on retreat, because of the retreat format, when we go home, the precepts are very important. Um, your presence and mindfulness is very important. But so is welcoming up this kindness and this attention and seeing if there's a way you can participate with life around you in a way that's benevolent and kind and generous. The Pali word for this is dana, D-A-N-A. Um, it, it uh, again, because we emphasize the silent retreat so much, and then we scatter, we really don't get to explore dana as, as much as it's uh, needed, as central as it is as a part of the path. Um, so we give it a little p- 
push right at the end of the retreat. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's pretty core to your well-being that you consider your well-being and the well-being of others, and then you come into we consciousness and us consciousness. Not just me and you, but how are we doing? How are we doing? Are we thriving? Um, so that's where our attention goes with mindfulness, not just on our internal experience. When I went to Burma, um, I'd never been, never been to the monasteries there. And a woman was just coming back to this one monastery that I was going to practice in. And I said, what do I need to bring over? Is there anything that they don't have there? And she said, oh yeah, I have a huge list of things you got to take over. I said, oh, okay, I didn't know. So we talked for an hour and she gave me this huge list of everything, clothespins and a laundry line and soap and power bars and um, all this stuff. It's like, it's really hard to get this there, so you got to bring it over. So I bought this huge duffel bag and I got exactly 50 pounds worth of gear <laughs> to bring over there to keep me alive in this country of Burma. I got over there, got to the monastery, put this big hunking 50 pound bag in the corner and it just sat there and all my needs were met. I had this big fear that Burma was going to be a third world country and I was going to go without things. But they had safety pins and they had clotheslines, they had candles. This whole bag was, was useless and it just sat there. Like a, and I looked at it, it's like, oh, that's my 50 pound bag of fear. <laughs> that's, what, that's what fear looks like. It's 50 pounds of it. And I hauled it all the way from America, dumped it in the corner, and it just sat there, like completely unnecessary. And if I needed something, I would ask, and the Burmese were happy to take care of me. It was a little slower to kind of get what I wanted, but we would build relationships and caring for each other. And I was like, I don't need that, but maybe just in case. <laughs> and as I kind of relaxed and felt the third noble truth kind of rising up through me and felt content, I was like, I don't need any of that stuff. But I see people who do. Yeah, I see people who do. So I unzipped it and started emptying out this bag of fear. And I began to transmute all that fear into generosity. And every time it took something out of that bag, it was a relief, like, oh, thank God. Because otherwise it was just this statue to my fear, this big lump in the corner, <laughs> reminding me all the times of this, like, I don't think I'll live over there. It's like, oh, it's, I'm gonna be fine. And every time I felt I'm going to be fine, I could take that much more out of my bag, give it to people who needed it, gave people power bars, and realized that they were earning a dollar a day to do labor, and the power bar cost a dollar. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. But giving it away, giving it away, giving it away. And finally it was empty. And it was such a relief to be empty, to get more weightless. And so this practice of renunciation was not prying something off of me. It was wisdom to see, I don't need this. I'm actually going to be okay. I can take this sort of stage dive out into life rather than being me taking care of me, which is a very kind of American imbalance, the lone cowboy, to like, how do we take care of each other? And to see that people are very happy to take care of you. And when I would go out on alms walks, I had a metal bowl and I ordained in January, it was very cold. Um, so I'd be kind of shivering a little bit just before the sun would come up. And that's when we'd meet our first person and we'd walk through the woods for about a half hour and we'd come to this long straight street. And whenever we emerged onto the, the sort of country road from the forest we walked through, there'd be this woman standing there every single morning 
about 200 yards away, teeny, but perfectly still. And we would kind of arrange our robes and we'd walk towards her. And I'd hold out this empty bowl and she would put hot rice in it. And because it was metal, as soon as the rice went down, went through the bowl right into my hand, I would put my attention, my full attention onto that warmth. It would warm my entire body. And then the grace in which he did that, it was just a spoonful of rice, but the dana was in the full heartedness of the gift. It wasn't in the size of the gift. It was her presence. And every morning she rejuvenated me. It's like, I can do it. I'm going to do it one more day. One more day I'll deal with this crazy mind and all the things that were coming up. Living off her dana, physical dana, rice went into my body, but this heart dana that was also there. And we'd walk through the village <clears throat> and people would be putting rice in. And then there'd be this mound of rice kind of going higher than, the, than your bowl. And you want to be careful that it wouldn't tilt over. This other um, very old woman in the village, whenever we walked by, she would put rice in. Then she would smooth it out inside of our bowl. And it slowed us down. Like we had a lot of people to get through so we could get back to the monastery. But when we got in front of her house, she didn't care about our schedule. She, scared, she cared about how we were doing and she would just kind of smooth the rice out, put a little more rice in and bow. Well, we had a long line of like 30 people. We always kind of had to slow down around her offering. That's how their father was teaching his um, four-year-old son how to do the offerings. So again, we'd slow down. So we put it, it wasn't even four, he'd probably be like two or three. But the son had like grabbed full of rice and missed the bowl and looked scared and we're all okay. <laughs> a little more rice into the bowl. So that that child would start its day every day with these acts of generosity. And that way the monastery and the village life um, had this beautiful relationship. And the villagers would come in to practice and they would come in for celebrations and birthdays and national holidays and village holidays. So I began to see that this, this sort of lone wolf ideal you go into silence, you watch your breath, you seclude yourself from the world, you try to find your freedom, was one model, but it's not a full model. It's not really what the entire tradition looks like. It's much more about you do that at times, so you can see clearly, calm yourself down, but then you go back into being a good citizen. Neither you do temporary ordination, like many people do, and then go back onto the village, or you might have lifelong ordination, but still you're having this constant relationship to the world around you. And I wouldn't have seen that if I only practiced silent retreats. So having this exchange, this dana exchange, kept putting wind in my sails. I kept warming my heart. It's like, oh, this is not just a selfish act, me trying to solve my problems, but we're doing something together. And that's, a, that's such a part of the, the path when it's well-developed. But if it's not well-developed, it's imbalanced. I think we still have a little bit of that imbalance in how we're emphasizing practice here in this country. So, <clears throat> um, maybe one more, one more pointer that really stands out for me, that um, about a thousand years ago, a monk visited a kingdom in, in Burma and gave teachings to the community. And they were so impressed, and then they began to practice, and they began to see the benefit. They began to taste the third noble truth. And some people to full awakening. 
And this kingdom was so impressed by these teachings, the Four Noble Truth, that they built, they uh, did something really unprecedented. unprecedented. For 200 years, they built as many temples and monasteries out of stone as they could. So this entire valley in this old kingdom called Bagan is just covered with these huge, beautiful spires going up into the sky, little tiny ones that uh, villagers could make, and then the kings and other people made these beautiful temples. And that's what they did. That's what, that's what was important to them. That's where they put their time and energy into building all these monuments to what a free heart and mind could be. It was so, they were so taken by it that they put an incredible amount of resource into building all these um, monasteries out of stone. And all their houses, even the, the kingdom, was made of wood. And that all has fallen away a long time ago. But what remains from that people a thousand years ago was a type of joy about the practice, joy of liberation, that they build all these testaments to a free heart and mind. That's what they did. And I think they kind of get an A plus in humanity. <laughs> and what they celebrated was where they wrote celebrating. And I look at what will they see a thousand years from now in our country, they'll see malls, <laughs> they'll see garbage dumps, they'll see some beautiful buildings, because there are some beautiful buildings, but whatever lasted in this kingdom is holy. And they built it out of stone, and it still stands today. It's called Bagan in Burma. Not many people have gone to Bagan. Not many people have gone to Burma because of the, the political situation there. But I think it's one of the most holy places on the planet to see what people did a thousand years ago when they really took on these teachings. And that's why the country of Burma is Buddhist now, is that they were so taken with it, they were so sincere about their practice that it really took root. And now a thousand years later, it's one of the, the three great countries carrying this Theravadan Buddhist tradition. But we can do that here. There's no reason we can't do that. We do that through this practice of generosity generosity towards each other. There's heart generosity, speech generosity. And there's also ways that we can build things together and ways that we can take care of each other by practicing dana. So when retreat begins to come shifting towards its end, dana that's been there because we've all been kind to each other, but we haven't necessarily been taking care of each other, that rises up as a secondary support, because we're kind to each other, but as a primary way that we practice. Not harming on the one hand, but then seeing if we can actually support each other on the other. And taking care of yourself because you're with you 24-7 is one of your greatest generosities to make sure at least you're taking care of yourself and then other people can help you, but then you help others as well. It's such an important practice and so fundamental to how this tradition has survived since the time of the Buddha, that we've kept it in Spirit Rock. And so all the cooks, all the managers, and all the teachers come, and it's our generosity to the students who come. And it's a one-way gift. We are giving our time, our love, uh, the practice, and helping guiding you. And nothing that you uh, paid for in terms of this retreat 
would come to us because it don't, we don't want to have that exchange. We're really trying to keep this sense of it's, my, it's part of my liberation that I'm generous and that's why I'm here in this room with you all. But practically speaking, I'm also here in this room because previous students were generous and grateful for the teachings and for that I was able to get by another month, another month. So there's an opportunity towards the end of the retreat to take care of the cooks and the um, managers and the teachers by offering uh, contributions in terms of dana, um, financial dana. It's not the amount that you give, it's really what feels like that love in your heart. And so some people say, how much do you give? And uh, there's a center in downtown um, Oakland where homeless people reach into their pocket and pull out the change. It's like 375, but it's all that they have. And they so feel the benefit of the practice that they're giving totally. And then there are other people who have given a lot more. Again, it's not the size of the gift, it's that you're taking care of others and we're taking care of you. And that's what we want to build, that's why we want to preserve it. So it's not an exchange, both of us all of us are being generous towards each other. In this, one, in this process, um, please also consider the cooks and the managers. Um, they are living on this generosity as well. And it's why they were able to be here and help you all, that previous students have recognized that and given to them. So the cooks, the managers, and the teachers are living off of the generosity of previous students. And we can keep going if that keeps going. But um, it's one of the values in our tradition that that happens. I wanted to give a chance for um, a few of you either to describe how you've already done dana, because some of you are not new to this tradition, or if you have any questions about the practice of dana. We have time for just a few questions about this practice. Maybe it's self-evident. Unless anybody's sitting on, just show your hand if you're just working up a little more courage. <laughs> Otherwise, maybe it's, uh, it's enough on that topic for now. But again, as we head home, um, you don't have to go overboard with it, but just keeping your attention internally and externally, on the welfare of other people and yourself, making sure that we're not just becoming isolated with this practice but that we do have a sense of interconnection. Yeah, would you pick up the mic? Where do we do that? The practicalities are something that Beth will talk about when she goes into some of the closing um, announcements about organizing the end of the retreat.
Well, the question was uh, just if you had any questions about the practice of dana more than the practicality of it, but just where does dana fit in our tradition? Um, and other people who might want to um, express what dana has already been like to them if you're aware of our tradition and you participated. But again, uh, it's the size of the heart. It's not the size of the gift. And so... Um, when you come to take care of someone, it's not about huge displays necessarily. It's about the quality of heart that is moved by caring for yourself and caring for others. Not just letting it be a good idea arising and passing. Oh, I saw it's in permanent nature. (laughs) But actually uh, acting on dana is one of the great actions. It's one of the great um, ways that we can express our heart and it's both a practice for your liberation and it's a taste of your liberation to be uh, willing to take care of others. So. <laughs> Got to get me a pair of those socks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. So, um, the Buddha talks about the experience of joy in generosity uh, before, like when you have the thought of being generous Mm -hmm. and during, and after when you reflect upon your generosity. Um... That has also been my experience. And that experience has often, maybe always outweighed the feelings of insecurity about the amount or Mm. the type of generosity that I give, which is awesome. Yeah, beautiful. I started doing this practice before I started working in a shelter for homeless teenagers. And then once I started working in a shelter for homeless teenagers, I began to see that my practice was such a benefit for staying sane in that crisis shelter. And then when I would go on retreat, I would be so fed by knowing I had this noble purpose in life at the time was to really help these families uh, become whole again in some way, or at least healthy. So that began to fuel why I wanted to practice. And so the so I could be generous, I really wanted to practice. And then the memory afterwards, and then getting a sense like this practice had purpose for it. So planning generosity, doing it, and then afterwards feeling like, this is right, I'm on the right path, it's a generous one. So that before, during, and after reflection on dana is sweet, and it's meant to be sweet. Then Duke. Just following off of that, I think that you really only get the benefit of each of those three stages if you remain mindful throughout the three stages. And I think even in the beginning stage when the real challenge, I think, is choice, is actually coming up with the amount, like narrowing in on an actual number. 
when it comes to money or in other situations, figuring out the right thing to do. And I think that exploration in and of itself uh, calls for as much mindfulness as anything else um, and is any part of the process. And I think just me sitting right now here thinking about it, after having gone through this retreat, there's a lot of Vedana and suffering that can come from from that Vedana. And I just think it's a it's a cool way to think of it. You like... <laughs> can throw out a number, watch the Vedana, see the flavor of it. Yeah. And then if some kind of craving, or like if the number's too high, for instance, then a craving for like keeping the money comes. Hmm. And that exploration can, is right now helping me sort of like navigate the terrain just by tasting the flavor of the Vedana. Um, and yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> And one more. Yeah. Talking about the uh, joy from generosity, um, uh, in uh, when I, I one day uh, wrote down qualities that of myself, and one was generous, mm-hmm. um, and I like that about myself. And in twelve step, one of the things. Uh, and one of our little things is uh, do something for others and not be found out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's one of my favorite little things to do, uh, do little things and not be found out. And it brings me such joy uh, um, uh, to do that. And um, it's just the secret little, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, uh, and doing Donna here... Um, I wish I had so much more money, <laughs> yeah. and um, uh, I uh, I appreciate what you said, Duke. Um, uh, 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 I I get a little uh, stuck with um, how much and uh, wishing I had more, and uh, feeling a little stuck with um, uh, well, this is what I can give, yeah. um, and. Um, uh, not feeling very satisfied with that, um, um, and uh, uh, yeah, just that. Well, and then, in the uh, right effort, we want to get rid of unhelpful mind states, and so we go to give this gift, and then it gets tackled by it's not enough, or, or fear, or maybe you know, can anybody see how much I'm giving? It can get complicated. And you just do your best to clean those things off and re- recover the intentional gift. Is no, this is a caring act. This is a caring act. Well, I do. I also do the math of well, if this many people are here and they all gave this amount, how much yeah. would the teachers get? I mean, you can try <laughs> those things. <laughs> you can let those those yeah, uh, that I, math. Yeah, I try to let you that if go. You want, but yeah. that may not get at the um, the flavor of Donna, which is really just the glowing of the heart. Right. And I've been given a pebble by a child mm-hmm. with full hearted mm-hmm. that t- was touching. Mm-hmm. And so it's really the um, the heart. And you know, how much could you give that really you're not um, digging into your own well-being. But it, it's, and when, and when you uh, give a gift consciously, really make sure it's like, this is part of my path and I'm proud of it. Whether it's small or large, it doesn't matter so much. It's the quality of the intention behind it mm-hmm. that really is the practice of dana.
And when I went to Burma, I didn't know that I didn't need those things. This woman gave me her fear and I picked it up mm. and it was good to recognize I didn't need it. So sometimes we don't know how much we really need it for the future. Um, but you, we can stretch sometimes and see what's doable. What's, what's an interesting stretch? What's an interesting exploration of generosity? And it becomes an investigation and something you play with. So that's why there really can't be a fixed amount because it's too personal to ever put an amount to. So thank you all. I'm going to turn the attention over to Beth. And thanks all for your attention. Enjoy your time afterwards and during dinner. And be sure to have some time of silence afterwards, especially when you walk up the hill. And we'll see you back here at 7. So Duke, I was wondering if you would... Okay, thank you everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.